Well, good morning and welcome to a new week of Roadmap to Heaven here on Covenant Network. It is 7 a.m. on this Monday, November 14th. I'm Adam Wright, happy to be with you this morning. Let us begin our week and our morning together in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day for all the intentions of your Sacred Heart in union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world in reparation for my sins, for the intentions of all my relatives and friends, and in particular for the intentions of the Holy Father. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. Through the mercy of God, may the souls of the faithful departed rest in peace. Amen. We dedicate all of our thoughts, words, and actions this day to the greater glory of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we do have a wonderful show in store for you today. We've got a lot to get to, um, highlights to look forward to do. We've, it's Martinoni Monday, and uh, who doesn't love that? We've got Doug Berry back with us. And um, you know what? I, 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 I Don't quote me on that because it is not Martinoni Monday today because of the other stuff we've got. But we do have Doug Berry with you, and we have Bishop Paprocki with us today, and... We have Dr. Scott Hahn with us today. In fact, Dr. Hahn and I were able to speak about a week ago, and we're going to bring you part of that conversation today, a little tease for you, but we're going to tell you where you can hear the full conversation at the end of the show. So that's all ahead for us today. Unfortunately, we do not have the weather report from Mike Roberts for you, but I want to point out, um, check your weather wherever you are. It's going to get into the mid-40s today for most of us, but then except for our, the listeners in our southern areas like Cape Girardeau and, and southern Illinois, there is a forecast of light snow or snow showers overnight, including in Springfield, Illinois, uh, Peoria, Illinois, St. Louis, Missouri, even Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, I have no idea if there's going to be accumulation. I have no idea the amounts, but I remember seeing that the other day. So I looked it up this morning and I know it's going to be impacting morning commute because we're not used to it yet. I know it snowed overnight. What was it? Saturday morning, the kids woke up and said, Dad, it snowed. Um, we're not used to driving in it yet. So just have that on your radar screen. Uh, one of our listeners I, I ran into recently was like, I know you. You're the guy that talks about the kids and the backpacks all lined up in the shoes. Tonight especially is that night. Have all your stuff ready to go before you go to bed tonight. Know where your brush or your scraper or whatever it is you use to clear your windshield if you park outside. Know, know where that's at. Have that ready. You may need it, you may not, but have it ready. You'll be glad you did. And uh, I have to remind myself to pull out my pair of gloves. It's been a while since I wore my gloves, so i got to get those out get those ready too. Do it all before you go to bed tonight. It'll make the morning go a lot smoother. And as I say, it's a lot easier to be holy in the morning when you get off to a good start. Let's go get the saint of the day, and then when we come back, uh, well, we'll dive right into the show. On the Franciscan calendar, today is the feast day of St. Gertrude the Great. Born in Germany in 1256, on the Feast of the Epiphany, Gertrude began her education at the age of four at a Benedictine monastery where she was guided by St. Matilda. In 1266, at the age of 10, Gertrude joined the monastery and began a journey that would lead her to becoming one of the great mystics of the church. In her mid-twenties, she began to have a series of visions that would continue for the rest of her life. Gertrude was a prolific writer, and the herald of divine love and spiritual exercises continue to this day to be outstanding resources for those seeking a deeper spiritual walk with the Lord. 
Gertrude also had a great devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and a deep love for the holy souls in purgatory. During one of her visions, Jesus gave St. Gertrude a special prayer telling her every time it was said, 1,000 souls would be released into heaven. Here is that prayer. Eternal Father, I offer thee the most precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in union with the masses said throughout the world today for all the holy souls in purgatory, for sinners everywhere, for sinners in the universal church, those in my own home, and within my family. Hi, meteorologist Mike Roberts for Covenant Network. Have a blessed day. St. Gertrude the Great, please pray for us. Saint of the Day can arrive each morning by subscribing on your favorite podcast player. Search Covenant Network to see all our podcasts. During this month of November, we're talking a lot about the dead, and one of the realities is that someday you and I are going to die. And there's a spiritual battle going on right now that's going to play a large part in what happens next. And we can either acknowledge it or we can ignore it, and that's something that Doug Barry and I have talked about before, and we are going to talk about again. Doug, it's good to have you back with us to focus on this spiritual battle that rages on each and every day. Yeah, good to be with you, Adam. It is a big one. And a lot of people just ignore that it even exists. And it's, I know the first thing we wanted to address was the reality of the battle. And the fact that if we do not know that there is an enemy, we do not know that there is a battle going on, then we are that much more susceptible. We're that much more in the crosshairs, you could say, of the enemy. It's important, first and foremost, to realize that Christ himself in the Gospels Our Lord Jesus actually dealt with the enemy directly, head on. There was no way around it. And we see countless situations, a couple of dozen times at least, where he is directly interacting in some way with the diabolical. They do exist. The father of all lies, we're told, is there. We're also told that there is an end that is very dangerous and destructive called hell. He makes clear the fire that doesn't die, no, I'm sorry, the fire that doesn't end, and the worm that doesn't die. So he speaks in many, many places in the Gospels of the reality of this spiritual context that we are all in. And we have to acknowledge it. We have to realize that there is a hell, there is that reality, there is a demon, there is a diabolical force, I should say, that's that's going after our souls. They don't eat, they don't sleep, they have spent their entire existence since their fall basically monitoring us, knowing us, knowing how we function, how we work, this carbon unit, you could say, with a soul in it that we are, this physical bag of bones, the demons know. They know very, very well, and they know how to manipulate if we allow them to do this. And if we do not even pay attention to the reality that they are there, then that manipulation can happen incredibly easily. Indeed. I think of one of the easiest things we can do every day, and we can't say this enough. And we're going to talk about things we can do this week as the week progresses. But from the beginning, let's just say, be praying that rosary every day. I mean, Doug, how many exorcists have we heard from who say that a well-prayed rosary is one of the greatest protections because the demons, they cannot stand it. They cannot stand the Blessed Mother. They cannot stand a well-prayed rosary. It makes them just cower. Well, and that's another perfect example. You bring up the exorcist, the reality that that they have, the exorcists have this unique position, this unique view on the reality of this spiritual battle. They are in the thick of a fight, and there are too many recorded incidents of people who have been in such a diabolical mess. They've been in some sort of 
spiritual turmoil, that there's no hope. No psychologist can help them. No, no other doctor can help them. No one can really relieve them of this agony that they're in until an exorcist steps in. And then the power of the church, the power of the church of, that Christ himself built on Peter steps up to the plate, and now we see things really happen. And these exorcists have told us for centuries, we know the countless cases, countless, countless cases of people who, when turning to God, that battle changes. And the Blessed Mother's key role in that, and I know we'll address this throughout the week, that cannot be overlooked. In so many of these instances, we see this. We're praying that rosary, the intercession of the Blessed Mother, the reality of this battle. Look, if this isn't enough for people to just take a very sobering look at and say, yeah, this fight is real. We need to be part of it. We need to, of our own free will, engage in it. And I know, again, as the week goes on, we're going to talk about how we do that. But it's so important, number one, to establish, if I deny this is going on, I'm a bigger target than I'll ever be. And lest anyone say to you, Doug, Adam, you guys got this all wrong. This is all just psychological or this is medical. Before the process of exorcism formally begins, that's actually something the diocese will investigate to make sure that they cannot attribute it to anything psychological or anything medical, that this is in the realm of spiritual warfare. So we're not playing around. We're not joking around. We like to be positive on the morning show, but sometimes part of being positive is saying we need to know what we're up against and getting ready for it. So, Doug, it's going to be a good week with you. I look forward to tomorrow. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Prayer Before a Crucifix Good and sweetest Jesus, before thy face I humbly kneel, and with the greatest fervor of spirit I pray and beseech thee to fix deep in my heart lively sentiments of faith, hope, and charity, true sorrow for my sins, and a firm purpose of amendment, while I consider thy five most precious wounds, having before my eyes the words of David the prophet concerning thee, my Jesus, they have pierced my hands and my feet. They have numbered all my bones. We are always happy to have one of our bishops stop by the studios, and Bishop Thomas Paprocki of the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois has graced us with his presence today. Your Excellency, it's always good to see you. Hello, Adam. Good to uh, be speaking with you and uh, your listeners today. There is a big day coming up in the Diocese of Springfield, and it's not just the patronal feast, although that in and of itself is a very important thing, that the Feast of the Immaculate Conception is the patronal feast of the diocese. But there are some other things that are going to be happening this year on December 8th, and that's what brings you by here. So, Your Excellency, I just want to turn it over to you. What do we have to look forward to in the Diocese of Springfield this coming December 8th? Well, this coming December 8th, we'll be starting our Eucharistic year for the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, our Eucharistic year coinciding with the uh, National Eucharistic Revival that the Catholic bishops of the United States announced last year. But we have a special focus in our diocese because it's always also going to coincide with the centennial of, um, to use the technical word, the translation of our diocese from Alton to Springfield. We would today probably call that a transfer. The diocese was transferred from Alton to Springfield in 1923. And so a little history of our diocese. It was actually founded in Quincy, Illinois, in 1853. The first bishop turned it down, and so it was a vacancy for three years. And after three years, they moved it from Quincy in 1856 to Alton, which is where it was until 1923. And I actually found in my files a letter 
uh, to then Monsignor James Griffin from the Apostolic Delegate to the United States, uh, telling him that he's the new Bishop of Alton. And then also found a letter right behind that uh, from the Apostolic Delegate three weeks later. Dear Bishop-elect Griffin, by the way, you are instructed to to move the diocese from Alton to Springfield. (laughs) And so he began that process in uh, the end of 1923 into 1924. And uh, so that uh, really marked a very significant uh, time in our diocese. So he then set about building the current cathedral that we have, the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. So our cathedral and our diocese and our country, as a matter of fact, are uh, under the patronage of, uh, of the Immaculate Conception. So we, f- we figured that would be a good day to begin our Eucharistic year. So we will begin with Mass at our old cathedral, which is still standing. It's Saint, now Saints Peter and Paul Church in Alton. So I'll be ce- celebrating Mass there on December 8th of this year, 2022. And then we'll have a full year of various events going on, uh, culminating in the closing of our Eucharistic year will be December 8th of 2023, uh, and that will be at our current cathedral in Springfield. And in between there, as I said, there'll be different events. We're encouraging parishes to have Eucharistic celebrations, especially on Corpus Christi, for example. But we're going to have a big diocesan event uh, that will be uh, in Springfield. It will be a Eucharistic uh, Congress for our diocese on October 28th of 2023. And we've already arranged uh, uh, to use the Bank of Springfield Center uh, in Springfield, it's uh, an arena, indoor arena that seats almost 8,000 people. So we're hoping to get people from across the diocese. I've already instructed uh, my pastors not to schedule any weddings or uh, Saturday evening masses that day. So uh, we, we want to try to get as many people as we can to come to Springfield. Uh, before that mass, it'll be a Saturday evening mass uh, at the Bank of Springfield Center. And prior to that, we have a couple of outstanding speakers scheduled. So we will have uh, Bishop Robert Barron founder of uh, Word on Fire, uh, who's produced uh, many podcasts and videos of the Catholic faith and is now the uh, Bishop of uh, uh, Winona, Rochester in Minnesota. And we will also have Dr. Scott Hahn, who will speak to us, and he's uh, a professor of biblical theology at uh, the Franciscan University in Steubenville. So it'll be a great program, and we're hoping a lot of people will come for that. That does sound absolutely wonderful. And I have to chuckle because I, I... You know, my kids say, are we the only diocese, Dad, that has an old cathedral and a new cathedral? And turns out we're not. You have one as well. We Yours is just as, a yes. little farther <laughs> away than ours. Right. It's still there, though. Yeah. Well, you know, as we talk about this, we're in this time of Eucharistic revival that you and your brother bishops have designated for the United States right now. And I think it's wonderful that the Diocese of Springfield will be intensely focusing on this over the next year. I can't help but think, and you'll have to pardon me because I never was a scholar of Greek and my Latin is incredibly rusty, that one of the meanings of the word Eucharist is Thanksgiving. And that's another holiday we're coming up on right now. How are you thankful for the gift that this is for the Diocese of Springfield to be taking this time to focus so intensely on our Eucharistic devotion? Well, you're absolutely correct. Uh, The word Eucharist does come from a Greek word. Uh, That means uh, uh, thanks, to give thanks. And so every time we gather for the Eucharist, we should be thankful because that's exactly what it is. It's a liturgy of giving thanks to God. And so what I'm thankful for, first of all, the graces that that God gives us, uh, our Lord has given of himself in the Eucharist. So every time we go to Mass, we should be thankful for that great gift, the Lord's real presence given to us in the Eucharist. And um, that then is also the great mystery that we should be focusing on with this Eucharistic revival, 
to really uh, try to promote a, a greater understanding and appreciation for the mystery of the Eucharist. That mystery is what was the focus of uh, a document that we spent a lot of time uh, talking about and preparing for last year at our uh, annual meeting of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops in Baltimore. Uh, We issued a document with almost unanimous uh, approval uh, on the mystery of the Eucharist and the life of the Church. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of the secular media played it up into, uh, they thought it was going to be some kind of a a document uh, naming politicians who should not go to communion because of their pro-abortion stance. And and there there are segments in that document that talk about the proper disposition to receive the Eucharist and how we should be prepared, and we should refrain from receiving Holy Communion when we are conscious of grave sin. Uh, But that applies to all of us, you know, and the sin of abortion is a grave sin, but there are, there are many other sins that we have to be aware of, including not going to Mass on Sunday, which the Church still teaches is a grave sin. Why? Why is that a grave sin? Because it deprives the community and it deprives God of something that is owed injustice. Giving worship is really, it is charity in the sense we show love for God and God shows love for uh, us, but it's also a matter of justice when you stop to think about it. That's why it's, a, it's an obligation Justice is the virtue of giving uh, to someone his or her due. Well, we owe it to God to, to worship him and to praise him and to thank him in the Eucharist. And when we don't go to Mass, we're, we are denying something to God that we owe him. And not only to God, but even to the other members of the community. We go to, uh, to Mass in a community because it's so important uh, for us to support each other uh, in our faith. And, uh, you know, if it's like if you threw a party and half the people you invited didn't come, you know, you would, you would feel let down. Like, oh, gee, I, I was looking forward to seeing so many people here. It's the same thing at, at Mass. I mean, from the, from the presider's perspective, I mean, we look out at the congregation and you kind of see who's there and who's not there. And people are missed. Maybe they don't realize it. Uh, they just, well, I'm taking today off. But when people are not there, there's a sense of, well, there's something missing here. And I'm sure other people in the community feel that as well. We certainly felt it during, during the COVID time, you know, when we were shut down. So I think now, now with people coming back to church, we still, I don't think have recovered fully from that. I think we have some people that got out of the habit of going to mass on Sunday. And so part of the Eucharistic revival is not only reviving a greater understanding for the, of the mystery of the Eucharist as the real presence of, of Jesus Christ in the sacrament, but also reviving the practice for people who have fallen out of the habit of going to Mass on Sunday. We need to get back into that habit. I think that's a, a beautiful habit to get back into. I'd like to uh, continue our conversation, but we do need to take a very quick break here. So if you'll pardon us, we will be right back with you after this. Who comes? The Word made flesh for me. The Lord who died for me. The love made food for me. He comes. To whom does he come? To one redeemed by him, to one allied with him, to one who longs for him, he comes. Why does he come? To reign upon his throne, to reign supreme alone, to make me all his own, he comes. Oh, I am glad to come to thee, my only rest, to lay my weary head awhile upon thy breast, to bring the burden of my grief hither to thee, and feel, O Jesus, Son of Man, thy sympathy. 
We're back, and we're happy to be talking with Bishop Paprocki from the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois. We're talking about Eucharistic revival and the wonderful things happening in the diocese. And Your Excellency, we were talking before the break about the habit of going to Mass, but one other question I'd like to ask about is that habit of spending some time with our Lord in Eucharistic adoration, and whether that's you know formal exposition with our Lord exposed in the monstrance, going to the adoration chapel, or maybe just coming to Mass early, or staying after to spend some time with our Lord. It seems that in the past two and a half years I've been involved with the uh, radio here at Covenant Network, I meet more and more people who say, you know, when I'm stressed in life, I go to the Adoration Chapel. When my spouse and I are at odds with one another and we know we love one another and we want to work through it, we each take our turns. And I, one of us goes to the chapel first and then comes home and the other one goes, and that helps tremendously And it can be one of those habits that's difficult to get into if you don't have experience going and sitting quietly or kneeling quietly for extended periods of time in the Adoration Chapel. So I'd like to ask, what are some ways that maybe for our listeners who don't have that practice currently but want to get into that practice that they can start to have productive time in prayer with our Lord? Well, I'd say, first of all, uh, I'm very grateful that... uh Many of our parishes are doing Eucharistic adoration. Uh, some have dedicated chapels uh, where they do have uh, Eucharistic adoration, perpetual adoration 24-7. Uh, and if they can do it in such a way that it's like in a side chapel with a, with a lock on the door and, and there's perhaps a, um, a, a, a security code, you know, they give the parishioners, so you can come in any time. You don't have to be giving out a bunch of keys. But there's a, a security code on there. So even if you want to come and pray in the middle of the night, uh, you can get into that chapel uh, and pray before the Blessed Sacrament. Other churches uh, don't necessarily have 24-7 perpetual adoration, but maybe they'll designate a few hours uh, during the week where they will have the Blessed Sacrament uh, exposed in the mantrance for people to come in and pray. Um, but even if, if not uh, with, the, with the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament, uh, the, the Lord is present there in the tabernacle so people can come in and pray. I've encouraged our priests, in fact, I just talked to them at our our last priest gathering in October about uh, trying to keep our our churches open as much as possible during the day. I know that's a challenge in, in some areas with security concerns, but there are practical ways to deal with that too. I encourage them you know, a lot of places put cameras around the church and you can't necessarily have, have somebody uh, as, like a security person in the church 24 seven, but you can have cameras and you can have your TV monitors uh, at the uh, at the desk of the receptionist. That's what we do at the cathedral. And so we've got these TV screens and we can kind of see everything that's going on around and inside the cathedral. So if there's uh, something uh, looks suspicious going on, uh, you can have somebody alerted uh, and that could be a staff member or or it could be a local parishioner. I'm some of our country rural parishes uh, where I've got a pastor, maybe two or three parishes, he may not be the closest person. And so it may be a parishioner just down the street. Uh, So to have that sense of um, being a custodian uh, for the church, but making it available uh, so that if, you know, in the middle of the day you're going by a church and you see a Catholic church, hey, let me just take five minutes. I'll just stop here and pop in a church and uh, and say a prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. Um, if that's not possible, well, we can always, you know, pray uh, to our Lord and, and then make what we call a spiritual communion. So a spiritual communion could be done in front of the Blessed Sacrament uh, uh, or it could be done anywhere. It's just, It's a simple prayer that, uh, we, we say we simply express to God that we have this longing to receive him and until the next opportunity to 
uh, receive uh, you into my heart, Lord. I ask uh, you that you come into my heart spiritually at this time. Something like, as simple as that is all we have to do. I remember when I first learned the words consolation and desolation, and it, it was actually coming out of the Adoration Chapel one time, and I said, you know, when we had adoration with the youth group the other night, and we were all singing, and then we had the time of quiet prayer, I just came out feeling so energized, and tonight I feel like nothing happened. And uh, m- my youth minister, who's now a very good friend of mine, said, well, yeah, that's because the other night was a time of consolation, and this is not a time of desolation. It's just not a time of consolation, but it was good that you spent that time in prayer with our Lord. And that was one that took a while to just kind of get into my head and sink in that even if I don't feel it, just taking that time to go be with our Lord in the chapel is in and of itself a very good thing. And it is efficacious. Um, Whether Adam Wright feels it or not, our, our Lord is offering his graces, assuming that I'm in a state of grace when I go spend that time with him. And that's a very important distinction uh, to talk about spiritual desolation and spiritual consolation. I think, unfortunately, uh, people feel sometimes, well, I'll go to, I'll go to church or I'll, I'll say a prayer when I, I feel moved to do so. And uh, to, that movement uh, of the heart uh, to pray sometimes is waiting for that the spiritual uh, high. You know, so I feel close to God right now, so I'm going to go pray. Uh, when actually it's, it's sometimes in those moments of spiritual desolation is when we perhaps need to pray more, uh, where maybe we don't feel that close to God or we're upset or wondering, why, why God, why are these things, bad things happening in my life? And precisely that's maybe the time more importantly for, for us to go to, to, to pray and ask the Lord or present those things to the Lord. I'm reading a very good book right now called The Struggles in the Spiritual Life by Father Timothy uh, Gallagher. And he's uh, an oblate of the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, they staff St. Mary's Parish in Alton, and uh, he gave me a copy of his book when I saw him over the summer. He teaches uh, at the seminary in Denver, so uh, but he's a member of the uh, Oblates of the Blessed Virgin Mary, so he, he, he will, he'll be there every once in a while at our parish in Alton, and so he, he's a very prolific writer. He usually has a new book every time I see him, so this one's called The Struggles in the Spiritual Life, and uh, you know, he, he treats with that whole question of spiritual desolation, uh, and also makes a very strong point that we should not be surprised by that, that uh, every uh, great saint and great mystic has these spiritual ups and downs. Sometimes they feel very spiritually high, but other times uh, you're in what he calls spiritual desolation. It's those times where we should not give up on our prayer and, in fact, even maybe need our prayer more more than ever in those moments of spiritual desolation. I think of my wife, and if the only times we spoke with one another were the times that we just felt so enamored and in love as if we were back in our honeymoon phase, we probably wouldn't talk that much, but it's very good that we talk every right. day and that we, had, you know, or I, I think of the dishes that pile up in the sink. If I only did the dishes when I felt moved to do the dishes, I'd have a very messy kitchen most of the time, but it, it's good to do things even when we don't feel like doing them. Well, that's a good analogy because uh, in your relationship with someone, if it's, it's those moments when there is some tension when you probably most need to talk, you know. So if there's something that's uh, uh, going on that's a source of tension and you, you say, well, I'm just going to clam up. I don't want to talk about it. Well, then it's going to fester and get worse. So it's better to say, you know what, uh, uh, we need to talk. There's something that's bothering me. And you talk it through and then you, you work through it. So I, same thing in our relationship with God. Maybe we're we're upset or we're wondering, you know, why has God abandoned me? I, I just don't feel spiritually uh, close or uplifted right now. Uh, and we just present that to God and, and kind of talk it through with him. 
I think we have time for one final question here, and, and so I'd like to ask this one. Um, thinking about what we, we were just discussing and having those good relationships with our spouses and with our Lord, you know, I know that when we make a good confession, a, a big part of that, as you and I have discussed before, is a good examination of conscience, which I could make at home easily. I, I do one every evening as part of my nighttime prayer. But is there any benefit or any grace to making that examination of conscience in the presence of our Lord in the church and maybe taking that time to go to the church early for the sacrament of reconciliation and making that examination in his presence? Yes, I think that is helpful uh, to do that. So first of all, that is a very important connection. We're talking about Eucharistic revival. Uh, I think we also at the same time have to talk about revival of the the sacrament of uh, reconciliation, you know, that they do go hand in hand and not, not necessarily only when we're conscious of, of mortal sin. Uh, that's when we have to go to confession before receiving Holy Communion. But we should make it a frequent practice because even if we're just putting some of our, our faults before the Lord, uh, that does help us to grow in virtue. Uh, and so I think when we do that, yes, you can, we can make an examination of conscience anywhere. And even if you're doing that, it probably is a good idea to be thinking about it. You sh- I recommend a, uh, at least a brief examine before you go to bed at night. Look back at your day. Um, Say what are the things you know that today that I'm sorry for, and ask God's forgiveness. And then, at the end of the week or two weeks, whenever you go to confession, you've been thinking about these things, so you're not thinking about it for the first time. Uh, and then, right before the sacrament, as uh, you suggested, I think to to go early. So if you're, you know, when the hours are for uh, for the sacrament of uh, reconciliation, that you give yourself a little extra time and get there. Uh, and even if you've thought about it before, maybe just one more time to sit down and kind of rehearse in your mind what are the sins I want to ask forgiveness for, and then do that uh, in our Lord's presence and just ask him to to help you to to be conscious of all your sins and to be sorry for them and ask his forgiveness and mercy. That's beautiful. Uh, your Excellency, could I ask you to close our time together with a prayer for our listeners? Certainly. Let us pray. Dear God, we come before you praising you with thanksgiving for all the gifts of your creation and especially for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who comes to us in the Eucharist. As we continue with this Eucharistic revival and as we prepare to celebrate the Eucharistic year in the Diocese of Springfield in in Illinois and the centennial of our diocese uh, being in Springfield, we ask you to be with us, fill us with your graces and keep us always close to you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A prayer of thanksgiving. For all you have given, thank you, God. For all you have withheld, thank you, God. For all you have withdrawn, thank you, God. For all you have permitted, thank you, God. For all you have prevented, thank you, God. For all you have forgiven me, thank you, God. For all you have prepared for me, thank you, God. For the death you have chosen for me, thank you, God. For the place you are keeping for me in heaven, thank you, God. For having created me to love you for eternity, thank you, God. Amen. We are always happy to have Dr. Scott Hahn with us here on Roadmap to Heaven. Today is no exception. Dr. Hahn, good morning to you. Good morning, Adam. How are you doing? I am doing well on this uh, beautiful morning, and I'm very excited because you have a new book out, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. And as we've mentioned uh, before, the whole premise of Roadmap to Heaven is how are we growing in holiness each and every day? 
And this book sets out to define a very important word, and that actually is the word holiness. What does the term holiness mean? How do we understand it? What's our relationship with holiness? And uh, rather than me, Muse, I'd like to turn to an expert who's written a book on it. So, Dr. Han, what is holiness? Well, all right. Great question. And I should step back and point out something that might be obvious, but might not. That is, it's the job description of theologians to make distinctions. I mean, this has a, a great pedigree going back to the first few centuries where theologians had to distinguish between uh, the fact that Jesus is divine and yet human. And so you distinguish one person from two natures. And likewise, when you reflect upon the Trinity in the opening centuries of the Church, you speak of three persons sharing one nature. And so we distinguish person and nature not to separate, but to unite them in the proper way. Well, in a similar manner, we have to approach holiness in terms of that which is primary and that which is secondary. Primary holiness uh, applies to God and to God alone. You alone are holy. Secondary holiness is where it is a gift to us, but it's not something essential or proper to any creature unless it is conferred upon them by the one who alone is holy. We also distinguish between objective and subjective holiness. Subjective holiness is what most people sort of associate with the term, and that is uh, people who are upright, but also people who are frightened. You think of Moses at the burning bush and how he turns away, and yet at the same time, he just has to look. Or perhaps another example would be uh, Isaiah in chapter 6, when he receives his call to be a prophet. He has this vision of the seraphim who are in the heavenly temple, beholding the glory of God, crying out, holy, 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 the sanctus that we sing in every Mass. And at one point, you can see that they're enthralled. On the other hand, even though they're seraphic and elevated, they cover their faces with their wings. And so there is a sense that Rudolf Otto described as mysterium tremendum et fascinans. It's a mystery that causes us to tremble, and yet simultaneously enthralls and fascinates us. Well, that is subjective holiness. That is the quality that we see in other people, and it's also the response that we have when we encounter either God or someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. But objective holiness, again, is that which is primarily applied to God, and really God alone is holy, and so what do we mean? Well, the Catechism nails it. In paragraph 2809, we read the definition that I find to be superior to whatever else I have seen. It reads, The holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. And then it goes on. What is revealed of it in creation and history, that's what Scripture calls glory, the radiance of his majesty. But the idea that the holiness of God is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery is sort of evoking what we know about the temple in Jerusalem, that you would approach God entering into the outer court, continuing on to the holy place, but then the inaccessible center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And so this seems to be based upon an analogy that in the Old Testament, prior to the Incarnation, God's own holiness was reserved for him 
and the angels. Every vision that the prophets have of God in heaven points to the fact that the population of heaven was exclusively angelic. You have the seraphim, you have the cherubim, but you don't have any humans there. And this is why I think it's crucial to see the progressive development of holiness as a theme in Scripture, because everything turns on the Incarnation. The coming of Christ is the hinge of salvation history, and we know that, of course we do. But, you know, in the New Testament, what you discover in the visions of John and the Apocalypse, as I pointed out years ago in the Lamb's Supper, you have heaven repopulated. After Jesus' death, resurrection, he ascends into heaven, but he carries captivity captive, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 8, and he's quoting Psalm 68, which points forward to the difference that will make when, in fact, Christ ascends into heaven, and he's going to basically take the souls of the faithful departed of the Old Testament with him, which is echoed or reflected in Matthew 27, where Matthew is the only evangelist who notices that after Jesus' resurrection, wait a minute, what's going on? The tombs of the saints of the Old Testament are opened all around Jerusalem, and their bodies are seen, but only for a brief time, presumably the time before the Ascension. And so heaven is repopulated, and it's so appropriate for us at this time of the liturgical calendar to reflect upon the fact that we have all saints for the first time, and all souls in purgatory who are being prepared and purified so that they can enter into the glory of God's own holiness And I I just think that the more we reflect upon this, the more we stoke the fires of our own longing, our own desires, to make sure that every day and every hour and minute of the day, we try our best to keep in view that thing for which we were made. Because there's only one goal, and that is to become a saint. And if we fail at our job, and if we, you know, fail in society, if we're not, you know, respected, if we're not wealthy, but we make it home, if we humble ourselves, he will exalt us. On the other hand, what the world considers to be success, wealth, fame, popularity, prestige, and influence, if that puffs us up and we end up not making it home to heaven, we'll look back and see for that person, every apparent success was really just another step downward, a kind of abject failure in disguise. And so I am so grateful for what you said at the outset, Adam, because really this idea of a highway, a road to heaven, that's what our lives are. That's what our years are. I just turned 65, and so I'm counting my own days. You know, I'm more aware of my mortality perhaps than ever before. But at the same time, we all know that the mortality rate for each and every one of us is 100%. None of us are going to get out of here alive. Right. <laughs> so the only thing that really matters is whether we allow ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit through good times and bad. If I may use an analogy here, as you've spoken about primary holiness, secondary holiness, objective holiness, and subjective holiness, and you use that term stoking the fire, one of my favorite things about this time of year is getting together for a backyard around the fire pit in my uh, suburban home, and on a crisp, cool fall evening, you know, I, I may be cold, I can't really do anything to make myself warm, but fire by its very nature is hot. And the closer I draw to the fire, 
the hotter I will become because that fire will radiate its heat on me. I will absorb it. Essentially, this is what you're saying about holiness, that God is by his nature holy, and the closer we draw to him, the more that holiness rubs off on us. We, we don't give it to ourselves. That's exactly right. In fact, you know, we can become good citizens, good students, good scholars, good athletes, you know, but if you want to become a saint, it's not about making ourselves bigger and better every day. It's really more about making ourselves smaller and drawing closer to Jesus, like Our Lady at the foot of the cross, like the saints of all ages. You know, and so you see a kind of convergence of two themes. On the one hand, we read in Hebrews 12 that our God is a consuming fire. Now, the author is quoting Deuteronomy. On the other hand, we also hear in 12.14, the author of Hebrews says, Strive for holiness, for without it no man will see God. Now, what does it mean to strive after something that we cannot conjure up on our own? Well, it basically means opening ourselves up more and more to the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And so when you look at the choirs of angels, there are nine of them, and the highest one is the seraphim, the ones who are crying, holy, 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 there in Isaiah 6. But in Hebrew, zeraph literally means fire or burning ones, because of the nine choirs, the seraphim are the closest to the holy God of Israel. And as a result, you might describe them as combustible. But, you know, creatures are not that way by themselves, not even the seraphim. But if you take a hard, cold bar of iron, you know, and stick it in the fire, it won't burn up. But on the other hand, it will acquire the properties of the fire that are extrinsic to that iron bar. And that is the analogy that the saints have used. I'm thinking especially of St. Thomas Aquinas, that our own created nature, whether we're angels or whether we're humans, is not something that is inherently holy. On the other hand, when we recognize that we came from God, that we will return to God, and that we ought to live every moment of every day out of love for God, loving Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we want to plunge our own fallible, weak, wayward humanity into the fire of God's love. And when we do that voluntarily, He imparts to us something that we cannot impart to ourselves. But on the other hand, once we get it, we then become an instrument by which others can also combust, as it were. And so as we allow ourselves to kind of gather the love of God and to acquire that for ourselves, you know, there is nothing more contagious than holiness. The joy of the Lord is precisely the trademark, the, the feature of those who are growing in holiness, because they recognize that, wow, you know, the only thing for which I was made is precisely what I can't do for myself, and so this is why we worship. This is why we rest in the presence of God. And in fact, the only time holiness occurs in the Ten Commandments is with the Third Commandment, that is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, how do you remember it? How do you sanctify it? Well, you get dressed up. You know, you have liturgical vestments, furniture, music, no, banners, and all of the rest. Well, yeah, that's fine, but that's secondary. The only thing that is mentioned is that you cease from your work, you and your spouse and your sons and your daughters, your manservants, your maidservants, even the oxen and the asses and the sojourners in your gates. In other words, we stop working after six days to acknowledge the fact that the only thing for which we were made is a work of God. 
It is not just a creative work where he fashions another finite creature. It is, well, it is a fatherly work. When Jesus heals on the Sabbath in John 5, he takes that man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, and he heals him. And when confronted as to why he did it on the Sabbath, he didn't say, well, I I couldn't come back tomorrow to do it. I couldn't make it yesterday. No, he doesn't heal in spite of the fact that it's the Sabbath. He heals precisely because of it. And he says, my Father is working still. The Creator God worked for six days, but God reveals Himself as Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit precisely by our ceasing from our labor in humility and total honesty. We're saying to God, we're saying to ourselves, we're saying to others that the one thing for which I was made and all of us were made is holiness, but that's the one thing we can't do on our own. We are saved by grace, not by works. Now, the grace will enable us to go back to work on Monday, but the fact is, we have got to acknowledge that holiness is proper to God alone, but it is also our property when we acknowledge the fact, God, I am your property. I come from you, I return to you, I belong to you, and I'm not only okay with that, I am overjoyed to live it out to the max. As we are talking this morning here on the radio, I I also think of that analogy that, you know, the radio waves are going to transmit from the antenna and from the tower whether people turn their radios on or not. And it's incumbent upon me if I want to receive the radio station, I have to turn the radio on and tune in to what's being transmitted. And so... We keep coming back to this, that there's no amount of work that that Scott Hahn or Adam Wright or any of our listeners could do on our own to become holy. And you said that the Catechism teaches holiness is the inaccessible center of his eternal mystery. And I'm thinking to myself, well, then how do I even begin to access that? And we've started to talk about this with the Third Commandment and the Sabbath. But, uh, Dr. Hahn, one of the things I rejoice in is I don't even have to figure that out and solve that problem because— God takes care of it. God's going to transmit himself to us. The question is, how do I become more receptive to that in 2022? Yeah, that's the point, Adam. That's a great question, too, because, I mean, that pertains to everybody every day, 24-7 for all of our lives. You know, again, going back to the job description of theologians and making distinctions, you know, we distinguish between the first table of the law and the second. That is, the first three out of Ten Commandments all pertain to God. It's the vertical axis of the cross, you might say. Have no other gods before me, don't take my name in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the last seven pertain to, well, the common good of our fellow humans, uh, beginning with our fathers and mothers and so on. And so we distinguish holiness on the one hand from righteousness on the other. We're not distinguishing them in order to separate them, because the Ten Commandments are together, just like the two bars of the cross are. But the vertical bar, as it were, is that relationship that we have to God, the Holy One, who wants to make us holy. And then the horizontal crossbar of the cross is our righteousness. Now, we distinguish in theology between justification or justice on the one hand, and sanctification or sanctity on the other. Now, 99 out of 100 theologians I know use these terms interchangeably, but justice was, you might say, the uh, responsibility of the king. Living in the palace, he was to administer justice along with the royal cabinet, the officers, the ministers of justice. On the other hand, 
holiness pertains to the priests who are in the temple, in the presence of God. Now, we distinguish the king and the priest, recognizing that, of course, Jesus becomes both the royal high priest, but not in the Old Testament. And this is why I think it's so significant that the vision of God's holiness occurs in Isaiah 6, and the vision begins in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lifted up, high and lifted up. And that's when the seraphim cry out, holy, 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 and the foundations of the heavenly temple thresholds shake. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me, I am lost. I'm of a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of uncleanness. For my eyes have seen the King, the, the Lord of hosts. Now, that marker in the year that King Uzziah died is not just like a temporal marker, because if you go back and you study what happened that caused King Uzziah to die, well, in 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah was successful beyond almost any other king of his time. He was the tenth in the line of David, and he extended the boundaries. He caused the economy to flourish. He strengthened the military. You might say he was like a, a mega king. He made Israel great again. Well, he was so puffed up with pride, as we read in 2 Chronicles 26, that one day he just strolled out of the palace, walked into the temple, and kept going beyond his own limits. He entered the holy place, and the priest tried to stop him. And then as he approached the Holy of Holies, suddenly, what happens? This king, who had reigned for over 40 years, is covered with leprosy. They drag him out. They don't just take him back to the palace. They have to have a kind of makeshift royal leper house for him, in which he dies in shame. So when Isaiah says, I am a man of uncleanness, and I dwell in the midst of a people of uncleanness, that's precisely because they blurred the lines between righteousness, justice on the one hand, and holiness or sanctity on the other. And it was a lesson that Uzzah also learned back in 2 Samuel 5 and 6 when he saw the oxen stumble and the ark might have tumbled, so he reached out and touched the ark of the covenant. So he was smitten because he knew that he wasn't allowed to touch that which the, the Levites alone are to carry. And so for us, to confuse things that are inseparable, but yet thoroughly distinct. This, I think, is the most important thing that theologians can help ordinary believers to see in order to live. Six days pertains to righteousness, justice, good citizenship, and all of that. Then the seventh day, in this case, of course, it's the first day of the week, because Christ has achieved the Sabbath rest in his resurrection before we were even born, much less before we go to work. But at the same time, we can see that this commandment in the Decalogue still applies to us, and it helps us to kind of coordinate our lives so that as we begin each week by celebrating the resurrection on the eighth day, the first day, Sunday, and even the rabbis were aware of the fact that why is circumcision legislated to be done on the eighth day? Well, because the covenant was broken, we need a new creation, as Rabbi Hirsch put it. And if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. In Colossians 2, the mortal flesh that Jesus assumed was cut off. And so the ultimate circumcision is the resurrection of Jesus. So on the eighth day, the first day, on Sunday, we sanctify ourselves, but really and truly, we gather and we rest and we worship so that God can do for us what we can't 
do for ourselves or our loved ones. That is, he makes us holy. And so then the rest of our work week can be fulfilling righteousness and justice through keeping the other commandments. But holiness spills over from the first day into the other six. And so all of our work is ordered to worship. The fruit of our labor is offered in liturgy. Righteousness, justification, all of that is ordered to what is greater, and that is the holiness of God. So we distinguish to unite, just as we distinguish the two natures of Christ to show how they're united in the one person of the Son, or the three persons of the Trinity are united in the oneness of the divine nature. So righteousness and holiness are distinct, and yet they're united in Christ, but they're also meant to be united in us. Justification was defined at Trent as our participation in the Sonship of Christ. Sanctification has never been defined by the magisterium, but the closer we get to the need for overcoming these heresies, we're going to see that just as the Son proceeds from the Father, and we share that in justice, so likewise the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and we enter into a participation of that, and that's called sanctification. Now, I I realize that, you know, for a, a conversation on the radio, this is like impossibly lofty. But it's sort of like, well, okay, but what better use do we have of our time as these airwaves go out? What we ought to reflect upon are, what are the implications? What are the layers or the levels of meaning that we find in the Word of God, that we find in the Church's teaching, that we find 24-7 in our own ordinary work? And I would say that the key to this that will unlock every door in our house is that if we allow the Lord to fill us with the Holy Spirit, then no matter how mundane the chores we do might be, they are going to be the spillover effect of holiness. So as we do little things with lots of love, we're going to discover that these are the steps that we ascend and end up (laughs) discovering the Holy One of Israel, that God alone is holy, but He is here for the purpose of making us holy. In the ordinary works that we do each day, if we're doing them for Him, we're going to have extraordinary grace and the truth of holiness applying to us forever. It sounds like this is really hammering the home the point that we make so often, because we need to be reminded of it so often, that if we live that life of righteousness, uh, not just the six days a week, but in every moment of the day, always keeping the commandments, but if we live that life of righteousness, it removes the impediments to be in relationship with our Lord, and if we're in relationship with Him, He will impart his holiness, but then if we choose something over him, we make something else God instead of God, our will and not his will, or we commit that mortal sin because we want that and we know better with God, we breach the relationship, it needs to be repaired, and if the relationship's broken, we can no longer be tuned in to receive his holiness. And so I love how you say they're distinct but united, that it sounds like we can't be sanctified if we're not in relationship, and the best way to stay in relationship is to make sure that we're being righteous you know, in everything we do. That brief, practical summary description you just gave was like spot-on, bullseye. I mean, laser precision, and I'm not flattering you. You know, it's a funny thing, because in my book, uh, Holy is His Name, I, I try to avoid diving into the stuff that I've just been talking about for like the last eight or nine minutes, because it really is somewhat elusive uh, and lofty. On the other hand, what you just did in that brief 
summary description that is so practical for our own lives to really dread and avoid mortal sin and all of the things that lead to it. This is really the thing that I emphasize in the book, Holy is His Name, because what I show in the book is what I discovered over the course of years, I mean decades. I should have noticed, because it was hiding in plain view, but I never did, that holiness occurs only one time in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and it occurs in the very beginning. In Genesis 2, verse 3, the seventh day is consecrated by the Lord as the sign of the covenant. It is the Sabbath, which is the climax of creation. And then in Genesis 2, we also read about how God made man and breathed in those nostrils the breath of life. What is that? The Holy Spirit. It's sanctifying grace. And so our first father wasn't just breathing oxygen. He was breathing the breath of God's Spirit. He had sanctifying grace. He had the grace of divine sonship. This is the mystery, because ten verses later, when God says, the day you eat the forbidden fruit, you will surely die, you read the next chapter, they ate, they didn't die, a natural death, but wait, they did die, a supernatural death, because they committed mortal sin. It was an act of spiritual suicide, or what the Catechism calls the death of the soul. We fear the death of the body. We completely forget about mortal sin causing the death of the soul. So as they become our first parents and transmit human nature, they transmit human life, but is utterly devoid of divine life. That's why even if your, your parents were canonizable saints like Therese of Lisieux had, they had to get her baptized. And when she was baptized, as Paul describes in Romans 5 and 6, original sin was contracted by Therese, just like it was by you and me, but then the spiritual death is overcome through the waters of baptism. Paul describes that as a resurrection in Romans 6. And we are raised in the waters of baptism more than Lazarus was raised on the fourth day, because he only got his human life back to the body, but we get divine life back that's eternal, that is holiness, that is sanctifying grace. The single most underrated gift of all time is precisely what we got when we were reborn, and then what we get when we are hearing the words of absolution, when we have done our best to confess every known mortal sin with proper contrition, and God makes up for what we lack, and we walk out of there more than Lazarus walked out of his tomb, more alive than he was. And these are the, the precious truths that we call the sacred mysteries that constitute the articles of the faith. You know, and it also explains why in Scripture, on the one hand, Holiness never occurs again in the whole book of Genesis, and yet when you get to Exodus, there's an explosion of holiness, and I go into a, a pretty clear and simple explanation that holiness occurs in the 40 chapters of Exodus, something like 98 times, beginning with, take off your shoes, Moses, for the ground that you stand on is holy at the burning bush, and then the holy tabernacle, the holy ark of the covenant the holy feasts, the holy sacrifices, all of these things are holy, including the holy land that they're headed to, and they're called to be a holy nation at Sinai there in Exodus 19. But it took me to hear from a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Berman pointed out what I should have seen. Again, it was hiding in plain view, that if you keep reading from Exodus to Leviticus, you keep hearing all about holiness, but never once in the Hebrew Bible is anybody ever called a saint. When I first read that in Rabbi Berman's book, 
on the temple. I'm like, no, no, that can't be right. And then he just explains that, yeah, all of these things are holy, but all of these persons are called to a holiness that they never obtain so that nobody's ever referred to as a saint. And then I found what I thought to be, ah, I've proven them wrong. Because you have in Daniel 7 a description of the saints of the Most High. But wait a second. What I discovered was actually the exception that proves his rule, because that vision that Daniel has in Daniel 7 is of the Son of Man riding on the clouds of glory back to the Ancient of Days in heaven to receive a kingdom that is universal and everlasting. But he turns around, and what does he do in the second part of that vision? He confers that kingdom upon, wait for it, the saints of the Most High. So the only time you hear in the Hebrew Bible people referred to as saints, it is precisely in the future when the Son of Man has come from heaven. He has lived, he has died, he has risen, and when he ascends into heaven to the Ancient of Days, to the Father, he gets a kingdom that has always been his, but he gets it for the purpose of giving it to us. Suddenly, there is a much greater explosion of holiness in the New Testament. First of all, with the overshadowing of Mary, and then likewise with the birth of the, the Christ child. But above all, in Acts and in the epistles, Paul is going around calling everybody saints. Why? Because you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. So through baptism, we get something that you could never get through circumcision, and in the Holy Eucharist, we get something that was never conferred through some lamb whose throat was slashed, whose body was burned, and we ate it. All of these sacraments in the old law were signs that point to the sacraments of the new covenant. And these sacraments are conferring upon us a power to grow in holiness that, you know, like Jesus says, the kings and the prophets long to see what you all see, to hear what you hear, to get what you got. But they didn't. We do. And it's like, you've got to be kidding. The relationship between the Old and the New Covenant is this divine pivot. What difference does the Incarnation make? Far more than we probably realize or appreciate. And so we have a capacity to become saints in ordinary ways. Now, the sacraments don't make it easy, much less automatic or robotic, but the sacraments do make it possible because God is well, because the sacraments are not primarily rituals that we are performing for God to get Him to do what we want. No, they're primarily actions of God in order to make us what He made us to be. And so, you know, this is one of those things. You know, we're in the midst of this three-year Eucharistic revival that the bishops of America have called for, and I'm grateful that the bishops of America have called for this. But I would also say that as Catholics, we've got to realize that this is more than jargon, it's more than doctrine. You know, when we think of the real presence, transubstantiation, baptismal regeneration, you know, my son Jeremiah was ordained a year and a half ago through holy orders and consecration. I don't think we really see just how truly fantastic these truths are. I mean, there's no way they can all be true, Adam, unless, in fact, they are. And, of course, they are true, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, it's the Catholic Gospel, but the fact of holiness and the sacraments and the Eucharist, I mean, these things are far more unbelievable than we let ourselves believe. It doesn't mean we've got to just kind of get frantic. 
you know, and get ourselves, you know, all warm and fuzzy. But I think what we have to do is just sit back and say the only logical and reasonable response to the reality of the truths that we profess in the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of what? Saints? And not just the forgiveness of sins, but life everlasting and the resurrection. I mean, it's like, whoa, it's amazing how unamazed we are at the things that we profess. And I can't help but wonder if sometimes, you know, our guardian angels hear us profess our faith, and it might sound more like a parrot saying, Polly, want a cracker? I mean, we, we should continue professing. But in the midst of the world, in the midst of all of our family life and busyness, we've got to carve out time to pray. That's what one day in seven is for. It's not just for like, you know, a, a, a 49-minute mass and then a rush to the, <laughs> to the parking lot. It really is carving out the time that we need to cultivate a supernatural outlook, to live in time from an eternal perspective. And I think what happens then is things start to fall into place. You know, even the problems that we might have in our marriage with our kids, with, you know, our boss at work or wherever we find ourselves, we can see that it's mostly through suffering that God, in effect, makes us saints. You know, and I, I, I point out in the book that the, the people who are in heaven are all celebrating their graduation from the school of suffering. The people in hell, you might describe every single one of them as dropouts. That is, they would not allow the Lord to make them holy through suffering. You know, but we hear in Hebrews 5, though a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered, and so he became the source of eternal salvation for all of us who obey him. And so the school of suffering is really, in a certain sense, unavoidable. You could run, but you can't hide from suffering and death. So why did God allow it? Because it's sort of like the I suppose it's like the chisel in the hands of the divine sculptor by which he kind of chips away at our own hardness and then molds us. He, he, he really sculpts us into saints, and each and every one of us is totally different. I, I'm sorry, Adam, for going on and on, because I, <laughs> oh, it's, it's, I love right. this stuff perhaps too much. <laughs> I am soaking it up, Dr. Han. Now, for those of you listening that are saying, well, that was a lot, and I've got a couple things here, a couple notes of good news for you. Number one, the book is available, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture, from Emmaus Road Publishing. You can go to stpaulcenter.com and find everything you need there. That's stpaulcenter.com. And you can find even more great books and resources from Dr. Hahn and his team at the St. Paul Center. Number two, everything we just talked about, this entire conversation, we're going to make available on our podcast. And if you're like me, you're going to be going back maybe two or three times just to hear it again and keep processing that. And that's okay. Uh, but Dr. Hahn, we are very grateful for the time that you have given us today. And we're, we're grateful for all of your work for the church. Thank you so much for being with us on Roadmap to Heaven today. Oh, Adam, I should say you're welcome, but above all, heartfelt thanks to you for the invitation, for the hospitality, and for all of the great work that you're doing. Keep it up, brother. Thank you. We are going to take a break here. Stay tuned. Prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. 
O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. In this month of November, we are continuing to remember the dead. And last week, we talked about remembering our beloved dead here on the Daily Dose of Encouragement. Patty Schneier is with us. And Patty, it's my understanding this week we are going to prepare ourselves for the fact that one day we will be the beloved dead. Absolutely. For all of us, I love the month of November to remind us of our mortality and to give us a heavenly focus. And we wait in joyful hope. That's the that's the key, is that we wait in joyful hope. But I do think it's important for all of us to be reminded again and again and again that now is the time to prepare. We've been given this time. If you are alive, if you are breathing, you have been given this day to walk towards your heavenly home, one step closer. And so we're given this time to prepare. Best way to prepare, confession, 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 the sacrament of reconciliation. And I would uh, say adoration as well. A priest once said this, and I thought this was so beautiful. He said, if you don't desire to spend time with Jesus now in this life, as in Eucharistic adoration, just spending time with Jesus in his presence, adoring him, what makes you think that you're going to desire to spend time with him in the next life? That really hit me when he said that. And I thought, he's right. If I don't get used to a custom and find joy of being in his presence and just going and spending time with Jesus, what makes me really think that I'm going to want, desire, and find joy in doing that in the next life? So I want to prepare my soul for that. And I want to go as often as I can to Eucharistic adoration. And I want to also always, always be in the state of grace, making a good confession regularly so that As all of us know, we never know that we are preparing to die in the state of grace, that happy death. Pray for the grace of a happy death, and that is to die in the state of grace. I've heard it said, I don't always cross the street after going to confession, but when I do, I'm not as careful as I was before going to confession. Patty, I look forward to this week on the Daily Dose of Encouragement. A couple of things to put on your radar screen for this week. Uh, First and foremost, we are invited to continue our prayers for our beloved dead this month of November. But this week, I also have a special intention for us. The bishops of the United States are gathered for their annual fall assembly, taking some time for prayer as well as discussion. And I was actually just reading an article this morning on some of the potential... uh, candidates for sainthood, for investigations into the cause of their canonization that they'll be talking about. We'll we'll have to get to that later this week, some fascinating stories there, but it's just a good reminder for us. We pray for our priests, we pray for our bishops. Um, I I was having a, a great conversation with a friend yesterday, and we were talking about all of the things that, um, our priests and our, our bishops do for the life of the church. And we're so grateful for the sacraments and, and we're so grateful um, for the ability to access the sacraments. So it's it, the least we could do 
is pray in thanksgiving for them. Um, and so St. Charles Borromeo is the patron saint of bishops, so we'll entrust their time together to his intercession. Also, as we continue to get ready for Thanksgiving, which is going to be here before we know it, it's next week, right? How are you doing with mentioning every day in prayer? God, I am grateful for this. Thank you for this today. You know, I was out sick last week, and if you've ever been out sick before, you know, sometimes it's not that bad, and sometimes you're absolutely miserable. And and part of that time was absolutely miserable. But one of the things I was very grateful for was, uh, you know, two of my daughters and I, we were all sick at the same time. We were all home together. We were all cooped up together, quarantined from the rest of the house because we did not want to share our germs. And I just got that time to, to tell stories with them and, and to talk and, and to read books. And um, if nothing else, just to be in their presence and have them be in mine. And even in that, I was grateful. And in my, my midday prayers where I do my, my midday, Lord, thank you for this and give me the grace to turn this around in my day, my midday examine. I was just so grateful that even in the midst of suffering, it wasn't a wasted opportunity. And, you know, also to try and explain on a, a third grade and, 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 you know, below level Redemptive suffering. I hurt right now. My tummy hurts. Yeah, it does. Well, can you make it stop? No, I can't. But you know what we can do? Every time it hurts, we can say, Lord, please take my pain for the souls in purgatory. Well, what does that mean? And then you try your best to explain it and you get where you get. And that's how it happens. But you lay that foundation and it's there. And then finally, uh, I wanted to say a word about detachment this morning. I heard a great homily yesterday. And, and again, because we've been Anybody with a, a, a large family knows that sometimes illness strikes your house in one <laughs> sweep. Other times it, it goes through on a, a rotating basis. Well, we, we were dealing with the tail end of it over the weekend, and I had to go to a different mass than I normally go to because of the way logistics felt. And Father was giving a great homily about detachment and talking about where is our focus. Because if our focus is on the most important thing, and that's our relationship with our Lord, can we honestly say that anything else really matters as much as that. And he used the illustration. He was talking about, if you remember a few years ago, the, the, the devastating fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And he talked about how that was such a loss for the people of Paris and, and, and such a loss for the people of France and for the world of art and the world of architecture, that there are things that were destroyed in that fire that we will never be able to recover. We can recreate them, sure, but we'll never be able to recover them. And yet, even in that, it doesn't break our faith because we still have the Eucharist. And he mentioned that one of the parishioners said, Father, I guess if it comes down to it, you know, as long as we have a place to come together and we have the elements for Mass, we have the bread and wine, we can be with our Lord. We can we can receive Him in the Holy Eucharist. And Father said, it, and that's the point. And so it was a great reminder for me because there was some stuff, as my wife's starting to ask, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, it's time to detach. Let's forget this stuff. Let's focus on the relationship with our Lord. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady Queen of all saints, pray for us. Saint Joseph, terror of demons, pray for us. And Saint Charles Borromeo, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On behalf of Covenant Network, I'm Adam Wright. I want to thank you for listening to Roadmap to Heaven this morning, and do not forget to pray your rosary today.